Section 6 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rosator Johnson, and John Rudd. The English Conquest of Britain, A.D. 449 to 579. Charles Knight. They, the Romans, says Bede, resided within the rampart that Severus made across the island on the south side of it, as the cities, temples, bridges, and paved ways do testify to this day. On the north of the wall were the nations that no severity had reduced to subjection and no resistance could restrain from plunder at the extreme west of england were the people of cornwall or little wales as it was called having the most intimate relations with the people of britannia secunda or wales and both connected with the colony of amorica the inhabitants of cornwall and wales we may assume were almost exclusively of the old british stock the abandonment of the country by the Romans had affected them far less than that change affected the more cultivated country, that had been the earliest subdued, and for nearly four centuries had received the Roman institutions and adopted the Roman customs. But in the chief portion of the island, from the southern and eastern coasts to the Tyne and the Solway, there was a mixed population, among whom it would be difficult to trace that common bond which would constitute nationality. The British families of the interior had become mingled with the settlers of Rome, and its tributaries to whom grants of land had been assigned, as the rewards of military service. And the coasts from the Humber to the Exa had been here and there peopled with northern settlers, who had gradually planted themselves among the Romanized British, and were, we may well believe, among the most active of those who carried forward the commercial intercourse of Britain with Gaul and Italy. When, therefore, we approach the period of what is termed the Saxon invasion, and hear of the decay, the feebleness, the cowardness, and the misery of the Britons, all which attributes have been somewhat too readily bestowed upon the population which the Romans had left behind, it would be well to consider what these so-called Britons really were, to enable us properly to understand the transition state through which the country passed. Our first native historian is Gildas, who lived in the middle of the 6th century, from the early part of the 5th century, when the Greek and Roman writers ceased to notice the affairs of Britain. His narrative, on whatever authority it may have been founded, has been adopted without question by Bede, and succeeding authors, and accepted, notwithstanding its barrenness of facts and pompous obscurity, by all but general consent, as the basis of early English history. Gibbon had justly pointed out his inconsistencies, his florid descriptions, of the flourishing condition of agriculture and commerce after the departure of the Romans, and his denunciations of the luxury of the people, when he, at the same time described a race who were ignorant of the arts incapable of building walls of defence or arming themselves with proper weapons when this monk 
as Gibbon calls him, who in the profound ignorance of human life presumes to exercise the office of historian, tells us that the Romans, who were occasionally called into aid against the Pixton Scots, gave energetic counsel to the timorous natives, and leave them patterns by which to manufacture arms. We seem to be reading an account of some remote tribe, to whom the Roman sword and buckler was as unfamiliar as the musket was to the Otaheitans when Cook first went among them. When Gildas describes the soldiers on the wall as equally slow to fight and ill-adapted to run away, he tells the remarkable incident which forms part of every schoolboy's belief, that the defenders of the wall were pulled down by great hooked weapons and dashed against the ground. We feel a pity, akin to contempt, for a people so stupid and passive, and are not altogether sorry that the Picts and Scots, differing one from another in manners but inspired with the same avidity for blood, had come with their bushy beards and their half-clothed bodies to supplant so effeminate a race. When he makes the feeble people send an embassy to a Roman in Gaul to say, The barbarians drive us to the sea! The sea throws us back on the barbarians! Thus two modes of death await us! We are either slain or drowned! We must wonder at the very straitened limits in which this unhappy people were shut up. Surely much of this is little more than the tumid rhetoric of the cloister, for all the assumptions that have been raised of the physical degeneracy of the people are quite unsupported by any real historical evidence. M. Guizot considers it unjust and cruel to view their humble supplications, so declared by Gildas, to Rome for aid, as evidences of that effeminacy of that nation, whose resistance to the Saxons has given a chapter to history at a time when history has few traces of Italians, Spaniards, and Gauls. That the representations of Gildas could only be partially true, as applied to some particular districts, is sufficiently proved by the undoubted fact that within little more than twenty years from the date of those cowardly demonstrations, Anthemius, the emperor, solicited the aid of the Britons against the Visigoths, and twelve thousand men from this island under one of the native chieftains, Riothemus, sailed up the Loire and fought under the Roman command. They are described by a contemporary Roman writer as quick, well-armed, turbulent, and contumacious for their bravery, their numbers, and their common agreement. These were not the people who were likely to have stood upon a wall to be pulled down by hook weapons. They might have been the people who had clung, more than the other inhabitants of the Roman provinces, to their original language and customs. But it is not improbable that they would have been of the mixed races with whom Rome had been in more intimate relations, and to whom she continued to render offices of friendship, after the separation of the island province from her empire. Amid all this conflict of testimony, there is the undoubted fact that out of the Roman municipal institutions had risen the establishment of separate sovereignties, as Procopius relates. Britain, according to St. Jerome, was a province fertile in tyrants. The Roman municipal government was kept compact and uniform under a great centralizing power. It fell to pieces here, as in Gaul, when that power was withdrawn. It resolved itself into a number of local governments, without any principle of cohesion. 
the vicar of municipium became an independent ruler and head of a little republic and that his authority was contested by some who had partaken of his delegated dignity may be reasonably inferred the difference of races would also promote the contests for command if east anglia contained a preponderance of one race of settlers and kent and sussex of another they might well quarrel for supremacy but when all the settlers on the saxon shore had lost the control and protection of the count who once governed them it may also be imagined that the more exclusively british districts would not readily cooperate for defence with those who were more strange to their kindred even than the roman all the european continent was in a state of political dislocation and we may safely conclude that when the great power was shattered that had so long held the government of the world the more distant and subordinate branch of its empire would resolve itself into some of the separate elements of authority and of imperfect obedience by which a clan is distinguished from a nation nor was the power of the christian church in britain of a more united character than that of the civil rulers no doubt a church had been formed and organized there were bishops so-called in several cities but their authority was little concentrated and their tenets were discordant pilgrimages were even made to the sacred places of palestine and at a very early period monasteries were founded that of bangor with a great circle seemed to have some relation to the ancient druidical worship upon which it was probably engrafted in that region where druidism had long flourished there were british versions of the bible but that the church had no sustaining power at the period when civil society was so wholly disorganized may be inferred from circumstances which preceded the complete overthrow of christian rites by saxon heathendom bede devotes several chapters of his ecclesiastical history to the actions of saint germanus who came expressly to britain to put down the pelagian heresy and amid the multitude of miraculous circumstances records how the authors of the perverse notions lay hid and like the evil spirits grieved for the loss of the people that was rescued from them at length after mature deliberation they had the boldness to enter the lists and appeared being conspicuous for riches glittering in apparel and supported by the flatteries of many the people according to bede were the judges of this great controversy and gave their voice for the orthodox belief whether the pelagians were expelled from britain by reason or by force it is evident that in the middle of the fifth century there was a strong element of religious disunion very generally prevailing and that at a period when the congregations were in a great degree independent of each other and therefore difficult of subjection to a common authority the rich and the powerful had adopted a creed which was opposed to the centralizing rule of the roman church and were arguing about points of faith as strongly as they were contesting for world supremacy dr lappenberg justly points out this celebrated controversy in our country as indicating the weakness of that religious connection which was soon to be totally annihilated we may in some degree account for the reception of the doctrine of pelagius by knowing that he was a Briton, whose plain, unlatinized name was Morgan. 
Macaulay had startled many a reader of the most familiar histories of England in saying Hengist and Horsa, Vortigern and Rovena, Arthur and Mordred are mythical persons, whose very existence may be questioned, and whose adventures must be classed with those of Hercules and Romulus. It is difficult to write of a period of which the same writer has said an age of fable completely separates two ages of truth. Yet no one knew better than this accomplished historian himself that an age of fable and an age of truth cannot be distinguished with absolute precision. It is not that what is presented to us through the haze of tradition must necessarily be unreal, any more than that what comes to us in an age of literature must be absolutely true. An historical fact, a real personage, may be handed down from a remote age in the songs of bards, but it is not therefore to be inferred that these national lyrics are founded upon pure invention. It is curious to observe that wandering amid these traces of events and persons that have been shaped into history, how ready we are to walk into the footsteps of some half-fabulous records and wholly turn away from others which seem as strongly impressed upon the shifting sands of national existence. We derive Hengist and Horsa from the old Anglo-Saxon authorities, and modern history generally adopts them. Arthur and Mordred have a Celtic origin and they are as generally rejected as mythical persons. It appears to us that it is a precipitate wholly to renounce the one as the other, because they are both surrounded with an atmosphere of the fabulous. Hengist and Horsa come to us encompassed with Gothic traditions that belong to other nations. Arthur presents himself with his attributes of the magician Merlin and the Knights of the Round Table. But are we therefore to deny altogether their historical existence? In following the ignis fatuus of tradition, the credulous analysts of the monastic age were lost in the treacherous ground over which it led them. The more patient research of a critical age sees in that doubtful light a friendly warning of what to avoid, and hence a guide to more stable pathways. Hengist and Horsa, who, according to the Anglo-Saxon historians, landed in the year 449 on the shore which is called Ebb's Fleet, were personages of more than common mark. They were the sons of Wictgils, Wictgils, son of Witta, Witta of Wecta, Wecta of Woden, so says the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, and adds, from this Woden sprang all our royal families. These descendants, in the third generation from the great Saxon divinity, came over in three boats. They came by invitation of Wertgeon, Vortigern, king of the Britons. The king gave them land in the southeast of the country, on condition that they should fight against the Picts. And they did fight, and had the victory wheresoever they came. And then they sent for the Angles, and told them of the worthlessness of the people and the excellence of the land. This is the Saxon narrative. The seductive graces of Rowena, the daughter of Horsa, who corrupted the king of the Britons by love and wine, is an embellishment of the British traditions. Then came the great battles for possession of the land. At Aylesford and Crayford, the Kentish Britons were overthrown. Before the Angles, the Welsh fled like fire. These events occupy a quarter of a century. While they are going on, the Roman emperor, as we have mentioned upon indubitable authority, receives an auxiliary force of 12,000 men from Britain. 
we cannot rely upon narratives that tell us of the king of the britons when we learn from no suspicious sources that the land was governed by many separate chiefs and which represent a petty band of fugitives as gaining mighty triumphs for a great ruler and then subduing him themselves in a wonderfully short time the pretensions of hengist and horsa to be the immediate descendants of woden would seem to imply their mythical origin but many saxon chiefs of undoubted reality rested their pretensions upon a similar genealogy the myth was as flattering to the anglo-saxon pride of descent as the corresponding myth that the ancient inhabitants of the island were descended from the trojan brute was acceptable to the british race but amid much of fable there is the undoubted fact that germanic tribes were gradually possessing themselves of the fairest parts of britain a progressive usurpation far different from a sudden conquest amid the wreck of the social institutions left by rome when all that remained of a governing power was centred in the towns it may be readily conceived that the rich districts of the eastern and southern coasts would be eagerly peopled by new settlers whose bond of society was founded upon the occupation of the land and who extending the area of their occupation would eventually come into hostile conflict with the previous possessors for a century and a half a thick darkness seemed to overspread the history of our country in the anglo-saxon writers we can trace little with any distinctness beyond the brief and monotonous records of victories and slaughters hengist and esk slew four troops of britons with the edge of the sword hengist then vanishes and ella comes with his three sons in 491 they besieged andrischester and slew all that dwelt therein so that not a single breton was there left then comes sergic and sinric his son then port and whose two sons and landed portsmouth and so we reach the sixth century sertic and sinric now stand foremost among the slaughterers and they establish the kingdom of the west saxons and conquer the isle of wight in the middle of the century ida begins to reign from who arose the royal race of northumbria in 565 ethelbert succeeded to the kingdom of the kentish men and held it fifty-three years the war goes on in the south midland counties where cuthwulf is fighting and it reaches the districts of the severn where cuthwine and caolin slay great kings and take gloucester and chirinchester and bath one of these fierce brethren is killed at last and caolin having taken many spoils and towns innumerable wrathful returned to his own where his own was we are not informed we reach at length the year 596 when pope gregory sent augustine to britain with a great many monks who preached the word of god to the nation of the angles bede very judiciously omits all such details he tells us that they carried on the conflagration from the eastern to the western sea without any opposition and almost covered all the superficies of the perishing island public as well as private structures were overturned the priests were everywhere slain before the altars the prelates and the people without any respect of persons were destroyed with fire and sword there is little to add to these impressive words which no doubt contain the general truth but if we open the British history of Geoffrey at Monmouth, we find ourselves relieved from the thick darkness of the Anglo-Saxon records by the blue lights and red lights of the most wondrous romance. 
Rowena comes with her golden wine cup. Merlin instructs Vortigan how to discover the two sleeping dragons who hindered the foundation of his tower. Aurelius, the Christian king, burns Vortigern and his Cambrian city of refuge. Eldal fights a duel with Hengist, cuts off his head, and destroys the Saxons without mercy. Merlin, the magician, and Uther Pendragon, with fifteen thousand men, bring over the giant's dance from Ireland and set it up in Salisbury Plain. Uther Pendragon has made the Christian king all over Britain. At length we arrive at Arthur the son of Uther. To him, the entire monarchy of Britain belonged by hereditary right. Howell sends him fifteen thousand men from Amorica, and he makes the Saxons his tributaries, and with his own hand kills four hundred and seventy in one battle. He not only conquers the Saxons, but subdues Gaul, among other countries, and holds his court in Paris. His coronation at the City of the Legions, Caroleon, is gorgeous beyond all recorded magnificence, and the general state of the country in these days of Arthur, before the middle of the sixth century, is thus described. At that time Britain had arrived at such a pitch of grandeur that in abundance of riches, luxury of ornaments, and politeness of inhabitants, it far surpassed all other kingdoms. Mordred, the wicked traitor, at length disturbs all this tranquillity and grandeur, and brings over barbarous people from different countries. Arthur falls in battle, the Saxons prevail, and the Britons retire into Cornwall and Wales. Amid the bewildering mass of the obscure and the fabulous, which our history presents of the first century and a half of the Saxon colonization, there are some well-established facts which are borne out by subsequent investigations such as Bede's account of the country of the invaders, and the parts in which they settled. This account, compared with other authorities, gives us the following results. They consisted of the three most powerful nations of Germany, Saxons, Angles, and Jutes. The Saxons came from the parts which, in Bede's time, were called the country of the Old Saxons. That country is now known as the Duchy of Holstein. These, under Ella, founded the kingdom of the South Saxons, our present Sussex. Later in the 5th century, the same people, under Serdic, established themselves in the district extending from Sussex to Devonshire and Cornwall, which is the kingdom of the West Saxons. Other Saxons settled in Essex and Middlesex. The Angles, says Bede, came from the country called Angeland, and it is said from that time to remain desert to this day. There is a part of the Duchy of Schleswig, to the north of Holstein, which still bears the name of Anglin. These people gave their name to the whole country, Anglaland, or Angloland, from the greater extent of territory which they permanently occupied. As the Saxons possessed themselves of the southern coasts, the Angles established themselves on the northeastern. Their kingdom of East Anglia comprised Norfolk and Suffolk, as well as part of Cambridgeshire, and they extended themselves to the north of the Humber, forming the powerful state of Northumbria, and carrying their dominion even to the Forth and the Clyde. The Jutes came from the country north of the Angles, which is in the upper part of the present Schleswig, and they occupied Kent and the Isle of Wight, 
with that part of the Hampshire which is opposite the island. Sir Francis Palgrave is of the opinion that the tribes by whom Britain was invaded appear principally to have proceeded from the country now called Friesland. For all of the continental dialects, the ancient Frisic is the one which approaches most nearly to the Anglo-Saxon of our ancestors. Mr. Craig has pointed out that the modern kingdom of Denmark comprehends all the districts from which issued, according to old accounts, the several tribes who invaded Britain upon the fall of the Roman Empire, and the Danes proper, who may be considered to represent the Jutes, the Angles, who live between the Bight of Flensburg and the River Schley on the Baltic, the Friesens, who inhabit the islands along the west coast of Jutland, with a part of the bailiwick of Husum and Schleswig, and the Germans of Holstein, Bede's old Saxons, are still all recognized by geographers and ethnographers as distant races. End of section 6